This is Film Tank. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. We're going to make film history. Can you say that again? Just the way you say it. Baby, it's time to lose their head. They won't know what they're looking at, but why they like it, but they'll know they want it. again everyone and welcome in to episode 216 of film tank alex steakman here along with my good friends nick cheney hey and tucson egan ahoy <laughs> oh boy this has turned into a real loon bin mm-hmm. i gotta tell you mm-hmm. i don't know 216 episodes i mean we've been here for a while but eesh Speaking of that, um, we are talking about a movie today that I don't really think would be considered a classic, but definitely uh, is a film from, you know, a different generation. I Um, would definitely, I would personally call it a classic. Well. I think (laughs) that it is... A cult classic. Okay, sure. You know what? We, we let's let's that. split it down the middle right there. Because there is an actual, I would say, a following of those who, basically those who saw it, because there's plenty of people uh, who never watched it and then never knew much about it. And, mm-hmm. and it's also not something that everyone has to go out and rectify. Yeah. But anyone who does is rewarded, I think. Yeah. Good, Good little taste. Reward. Good little taste of what's coming from Nick Cheney. <laughs> Nick just took a drink from a beer. And... <laughs> See the narrator over here? Nick just took a drink from a beer, and now, now he's got doing? something in his throat, and it's beer. Well, now you're standing attentively, waiting to move on to the next <laughs> point of the... This going on. Well, that's not 100% true. Agree mm, to disagree. So, the film we are talking about Facts is Facts the... aren't up for debate. <laughs> <laughs> The Facts night. don't care about your feelings. Is the 1991 film The Fisher King, which was directed by Terry Gilliam. Boom. You know what? Like, there, I'm just kidding. There, I just thought that was funny. Yeah, there was there was a time when he was a good filmmaker, and you know what? That this is around that time. Yeah, he uh, really, really around like after the Brothers Grimm is when it really went downhill. What are you looking at? I think around like the the mid eighties to mid nineties, like that whole like ten year stretch. That's when he was really at his like peak. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. that's what he's saying. His yeah. la- his last film in the nineties was Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Yeah, yeah. and that was only ninety seven. Yeah, so it's not like he was churning them out. He didn't yeah. do anything till '05 with the Brothers Grimm. Right. And yeah. Then it's so been, it's almost like yeah. Alex said the exact right thing. <laughs> you know what? He did. Thanks, Tucson. Yeah. Thanks for rectifying that. That's okay. Well, Wait. forgive me. <laughs> that's that's a, great. Yeah, you'll you're you're gonna learn more about that because that's actually a line from the film. <laughs> we just did learn about it. I know, but I'm it. talking to the audience. Which audience? The ones that are listening to this podcast right now. Oh, that audience! Yeah. Hi there, friends. Yeah, there are people listening to this. Yeah, there are people listening to this, and you know what? We really appreciate them continuing to listen to us. So for 260 episodes after 16, 16. I was going to say, let's not get too excited. Yeah. Let's not blow our wad too much. So uh, after the Brothers Grimm, it's been the Imaginarium of Doctor Parnassus, then the Zero Theorem, which nobody saw. I didn't. I remember. That was like I was hyped for that. Yeah, like I I've never seen it, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I just remember it. some of the Wikipedia files that were coming out about it, it was like being billed as like crazy return to form, uh, and then it went straight to video, despite the fact that it at the time starred 
Christoph Waltz, uh, who was... I believe it still stars him. I meant who was a big deal back then, we're being really, Alex. We're being really pedantic on this this week's episode. Oh, are we being pedantic, <laughs> yeah. Tucson? Yeah. Pedantic? Is that the word you would go with? Yes. Because I wouldn't. I would. <laughs> well, I mean, to be fair, there have been other films that have went. Oh, now you want to be fair? <laughs> <laughs> getting, there's hand motions. We haven't and even gotten to the film yet. No. At least we mentioned and the whose fault is that, Mr. Pedantic? <laughs> well, excuse me. Did you guys hear Mr. Peanut died? Oh, excuse me. Yeah, so Forgive me, but yeah. What kind of a weird publicity stunt was that? A weirdly affecting one. Because um, let me tell you, uh, I shed a few tears. I saw your tweet. And he died because of <laughs> what? First Jeffrey Epstein and now Mr. Peanut. This goes so much deeper than we know. Oh my god, I was dying. Yeah. I mean, it was my first thought. Oh my god. All right. So, so yes. So, uh, I was going to say, though, oh, we just reviewed- I mean, by the end, he was a shell of a man. Yes. Anymore. I'm done. No, nope, I'm good. Are you sure? Yeah. He's got one more. Okay. Oh, wait, so, I just thought of a butter one. Yeah, you know. <laughs> oh, man. Alex, yeah, tell anyways, us more about the film that no, we're talking about. No, all I was going to say is that we reviewed a film that you guys liked and I thought wasn't very good. Mm. That was a, what ended up being a video release, which was Under the Silver Lake. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So there's potential for it, but uh, zero. Oh, film. yeah. No, I'm not saying that like straight to video means Rare. total One of my all-time shit. favorite movies is Triangle, which never got a theatrical run. Triangle yeah. was a good movie. Yeah. Anyway. So anyways, Terry Gilliam directed the 1991 film The Fisher King, which stars Jeff Bridges and also Robin Williams. Hey. Uh, the film also features some other people who you may or may not know, including Mercedes Rule, who actually won an Academy Award for this film, which is an interesting little factoid. Uh, also, Amanda Plummer makes an appearance, uh, although she doesn't really pop up until about halfway through the film, but she definitely plays a pivotal character uh, later on in the film. And a most very people, forgiving one. Yeah. Most people would remember her uh, from the opening scene and the closing scene of Pulp Fiction. So, the Fisher King... But the opening and the closing scene are the same scene. See, this is what I'm talking about, Nick. Alex, continue. Okay. So, uh, the Fisher King surrounds a former radio DJ, suicidally despondent because of a terrible mistake he made. He finds redemption in helping a deranged homeless man who is... It's a little judgmental. I mean, that's the IMDb. (laughs) Who is unwittingly a victim of that same mistake. So... Uh, I've been interested in watching this film for quite some time. I just had my very first viewing, but, uh, I know both of you guys had previous experience with this film, so why don't one of you take the lead on this? You can go first. All right. Uh, yeah, no, this was a staple of mine back in the blockbuster video, uh, era. It was a rated R movie that I was allowed to watch even when I was younger, because it's really not all that bad as far as, like, it's an adult movie, but it's not a crude movie, at least... Um, not vulgarly so, so to speak. There's nudity. Well, there, you mean Robin Williams? Yeah. Buttocks? Yeah. Well, not just this buttocks. There's a little side dick in there. Oh, that's yeah. true. Yeah. That's really not where I considered, I would say, the threshold for Robin Williams' dick, because uh, the movie World's Greatest Dad has got it right there for you. Oh, my God. In water, too, so it's very slow and buoyant. Anyway. Mm, yeah. Um, uh, the Fisher King. Uh, yeah. So I remember renting this for the first time on a whim because it starred one person I at the time obviously knew, Robin Williams, and someone who at the time I actually wasn't that familiar with, as being a young person. Um, and checked it out, checked it out, rented it, uh, brought it home, and I remember being like bowled over and thinking it was like amazing and whatnot, and. I will admit, in this day and age, uh, rewatching it, I definitely think nostalgia is playing a big part in my affection for it, which is to say that I actually do think it's quite good. 
Um, I think it's very imaginative and while I do question Terry Gilliam's uh, fetishization of, uh, I would say, mentally ill people, mm-hmm. yeah. um, I do think this is probably his greatest synthesis of that idea um, in the kind of visual imagery that's present here. And I would say in the treatment of Perry, um, it actually does help that I do think there's a reason why it works here, which is that this is one of the first, well, this was the first at the time, and I don't know if he ever did it again, but uh, script, he had no part in writing. So this was his visual style, and Ernest Hart grafted onto somebody else's take on themes he's already been clearly interested in up until that point. Um, But no, I I, I think this movie is pretty good. I wouldn't say I love it, but I definitely could watch this, uh, you know, every few years uh, or so, because I think there's a worthwhile journey to to be had with uh, Jeff Bridges' character and his relationship with Perry. I think mostly everything between the two of them is actually fantastic. I think... Rob Williams' subplot with Lydia, Amanda Plummer, is the one thing that's a little too dated in its uh, uh, approach. Because while I don't actually find it offensive, which is actually a miracle for the era and uh, and the subject matter, um, I do find it slightly... Uncomfortable. Uh, I mean, uncomfortable possibly, but maybe even just more... Um, I don't know. Retrograde? Yeah, probably retrograde is a good... In the sense that, like... I'm sorry I'm doing the thing that he was doing at the beginning of the film, which is... Yeah, finishing my sentences? Yeah. Well, I do feel like uh, one thing about the film that I... I don't know if this was necessarily... I mean, I'm assuming it was obviously somewhat intentional, but... um, I feel like... um, Like... Perry and Lydia's characters, obviously, they make mention that they have a lot of similarities with mm-hmm. them, whatever. But um, I feel like saying that Perry is a crazy person, and that's the reason why he's like it, and Lydia is just a normal person, and that's just how she is. No, yeah, it's I mean, definitely there's a really weird... uncomfortable for Agre- me. Agreed, especially because if we're just talking. About this on a script level, so I'm not trying to bring in real, uh, real world or whatever. Right. But the movie itself asks you to take for granted that Perry is uh, suffering from a psychosis that's the product of trauma. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying Perry can never get cured or anything like that, or or could definitely be cured. But there is that almost suggestion that Perry himself is a quote unquote normal person. Mm-hmm who's technically going through something, whereas Lydia is a abnormal person who just happens to have a few uh, mental quirks. And I, I agree that it's almost weird that, like, when we're, you know, when we meet Lydia through the eyes of Perry and he describes her and this is his stalker routine, mm-hmm. we don't know much about her. We know she's like a cuss and whatnot, but we haven't met her yet, so we don't know the full extent of her neuroses. So I do feel like there is something slightly, if not offensive, something slightly uh, too simple-minded to be like, well, the only way we're going to give Perry a love story is if we make her kind of mentally... Uh, challenged in some way, and I know that she's a, shall we say, functioning human being mentally or emotionally. Yeah, I mean, you know, and it's almost weird as if it's a weird othering of both characters that is slightly disrespectful, I think, to mental illness in general. Yeah, they're made for each other, right? The whole exactly. That's and not only that, but they're Jeff Bridges and. The character of his aunt, yes, are like cracking up hysterically, which I think for the most part, those two actors throughout the entire movie sell their characters well enough that I don't read it this way. But it is, it is a, I was going to say, fine line where if that happened in any other movie or if any other thing was not calibrated right, that looks like two quote unquote normies uh, laughing at the. Down syndrome bus that just pulled up to their dinner. Like, 
I, I, I'm saying something, you no, know, but that's just yeah. kind of how it reeks or whatever. Yeah. Um, having said that, I do think the film itself and the performances there within are so earnest that it really does, at least for me, catch me off guard, that it really does become emotionally affecting by the end. And I think that for the most part, it is a pretty decent um, struggle and depiction of the struggle with uh, something like a traumatic event and the way it follows you around and whatnot. Um, so I actually kind of like that part. I just would be hesitant to, like, I'm just glad we've come a lot further than where we were, but I definitely think this is a movie that's a product of its time, but in a good way for most reasons. A few bad reasons, but in general, like, you're never going to make another movie like this where, you know, um, you have this kind of almost... Uh, like, how would, you know, for example, his delusions of grandeur of being a knight and whatnot, like, I almost kind of buy it in, in this version of New York, you know, because cell phones aren't waving around, you know what I mean? Everything looks, like, kind of mechanical. I'm not saying I buy it in the sense that I had, it works I, I'm for right the time, there with... It works for the time that it's set in? Yeah. yeah. Like, it, it is just only so far <laughs> enough removed that I can kind of get lost in that thought, whereas, like, if... You know, it was set in 2019, but it was the same premise. I'd no. be like, so you're telling me he's going to go into an Apple store and think that those are storybooks instead of computers? Or, you know, like, it's just whatever. So um, the only other thing I'll mention is that I actually think this movie's presentation is not perfect by any means, but was slightly better than I remembered when it comes to homeless people, which is that it gets, uh, shall we say the the other characters' perspective of them right, which is that most people are looking down, even in the movie, on this entire uh, population and talking crass about them and then exploiting them. Yeah. Sitting <laughs> um, in on that uh, that pitch meeting where yeah. it's like, yeah, it's like they're homeless, but they love to be homeless. I mean, they don't, they're free from I, all the I, things I, that I, we have to do. I do really genuinely love that Jeff Bridges gets up and sprints out of that mm-hmm. room like... Like he's like he's all of us. He's at some point in our lives. He's trying to get away from a virus, and yeah. if he doesn't, he's going to die. Yeah. And it's yeah, it's pretty great. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, and I really like that capper kind of so that way at least the script doesn't completely ignore the idea that um, uh, as a viewer you might start to fetishize uh, the healing power of what Perry goes through and mistake his journey as something being necessary instead of just being a byproduct of his own trauma. Mm -hmm. So therefore, I kind of like the idea that the movie makes sure to at least acknowledge that whatever joy someone can get out of a bad situation, for example, if it is homelessness, does not in any way validate that experience as a humane one. Uh, And and so I I appreciated that. Look, they're happy. It's not that bad. Actually, shut the fuck up. Yeah, like, just because they... (laughs) you know, might have a good moment or might have a good life, whatever they consider, that doesn't mean that it's justified. It's like, necessary it, for survival. Yeah. yeah. They're just doing better than you are as far as, uh, well, not better, but you know what I mean? Like right. mentally, if they can come up with that kind of uh, appreciation, right. so to speak. Yeah. Anyway. One, one thing I really actually liked about this film, and I liked quite a few things about it, but yeah. one thing... I'm done, by the way, so you oh, can go okay. right into it. Well, I'll say my one thought, and then I'll get into my overall thoughts, but okay. my, my specific thought <laughs> is that one thing that I was thinking about almost the entire film and just almost expecting, and then when it didn't arrive ever, I was kind of pleasantly surprised, and not that I wouldn't want something like this, but um, the idea that... Um, the idea of um, Jeff Bridges is sorry. Is it Jack? It is Jack. Yeah, Jack yeah. Lucas. the The idea of uh, Jack Lucas's uh, radio show leading to Robin Williams' wife's death uh, that never comes up, um, which I think is pretty, pretty, pretty good because it's. Never... You mean never comes up between the two? Characters? Oh yeah, no, yeah. In no. any other film, that would be like a, a point of confrontation. Mm-hmm. And However. Sort of... Do you Reconciliation think between the two. Do you think it's ambiguous enough to think that maybe Robin Williams knew from the moment he saw him because sure, he but... had a flash of this is the one, yeah, uh, which I I find interesting to to and talk I, about. I um, but I agree. I'm, with, I'm you. with you on that. But the idea of that it never goes, you know, there's mm-hmm. 
um, in movie that I absolutely love, V for Vendetta, there was a very specific decision made to never show his face because the idea of behind the mask and theatricality and whatever, and you always see the face behind the mask, and this is like, man, we're just not going to address that. And yeah, I, yeah. I absolutely love that, yeah. even though as a as a sucker for stories, I'm just like. I want to see what happens. And that's the point. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, I thought this movie was actually very good. Um, As a person who previously aspired to be in radio, um, and obviously radio in the late 80s, early 90s is much different than radio now, uh, especially with like Sirius XM and things like that. But um, just a scene, and this is really kind of nerdy, but seeing the opening radio DJ scene, obviously a lot of what he's saying is very much just ripped from people like Howard Stern or somebody like that. Yeah, he's very much a Howard Stern type. Yeah, but he just watching like the physical radio station things of him like actually pulling out the tapes and putting in the one that he needs and putting it in at the right time and playing that drop or whatever and yeah. seeing the producers doing things like... That's what I always like imagined. loved and imagined about being in radio. And it's a very short period, but it's a really good introduction to this film. And I made mention of the um, pretty excellent cinematography and production design in that opening scene when Toussaint and you were making mention of how good of a shot and good of a look it was yeah. when you're seeing the walls. And I made a mention it looked like a prison. Yeah, the lighting. Yeah, and that obviously I'm pretty sure was quite intentional, yeah. especially after seeing the rest of the film. Um but I found a lot of this film very, very interesting, and um, I enjoyed following it through all of the threads it was pulling on. Um, I do think that the story here that's happening between the two main love stories is actually kind of not amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, the love story that's happening with uh, Jeff Bridges, I felt like was... Not bad, and it's not that I didn't like um, Anne's character, and I, I didn't like um, Jack's character either, but kind of to go off a little bit what Nick was talking about with uh, the relationship between Lydia and um, Perry, um, I felt like that just, I had no interest in that throughout, and even though we're supposed to, he's supposed to be learning about love, and he's supposed to be learning about being a real human and not just this piece of shit that both he a thinks of himself and thinks that he cannot escape from. Um, but at the same time, I just feel like a lot of the actual just story beats of that were just kind of meh. Um, so I, I think that that could have been a little bit better and really delivered the message of what that was going for as opposed to a lot. I mean, and I think maybe some of it is just that the film's aging, like some of the video store stuff, although it's pretty awesome to see that and um, pull from it. It's just like, okay, like eh, it's people going to look at porn at the video store. Like, I feel like, I guess that obviously was a thing for a very long time, but now yeah. it's just like, oh, no, that was an that. era. And, yeah. you know, the porn is in the actual manager's office, so you actually have to go in there. In yeah. order to look at it, so they don't steal it. And I'm just like, oh, like this all seems pretty plausible. Yeah. Uh, when we get to the actual story, though, of what's actually happening in this film, I found it to be actually pretty fascinating. Um, I love the idea of him almost having uh, the movie. I kept thinking of throughout this entire movie was "It's a Wonderful Life," um, because he's sort of like the anti-George Bailey, where he's had this terrible effect on all these people's lives. Um, and I think there's even different mentions throughout here that there are other homeless people who were involved in that uh, same incident uh, that happened that they go by on the street. Um, and I don't know if that was just something I was just picking up on or if it was actually was a thing. Um, but I feel like this film's one of its biggest things it's going for is the idea of homeless people none of them chose to be there. Yeah. None of them. And you see sort of shades of the life that they might've led, um, before whatever might've occurred that actually brought them into homelessness. Like when, uh, when Perry 
uh, is given uh, however so many dollars by uh, Jack. And then he goes over to the one homeless person who seems like he, in a former life, was a stockbroker because he's just speaking like yeah. nonsensically into a phone that happens to be on his uh, his shopping cart. Mm-hmm. And he's like, buy, 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 sell, sell, sell. And I was like, I thought that was really interesting. And you see other cases of that with like homeless people in this. Yeah, even uh, with uh, Michael Jeter's character, who's the claims to be the former singer and there's from some of his theatricality that yeah. he does in that yeah. pretty uh unfortunately i don't know because i'm i'm conflicted on the scene where he takes the balloons into her office mm-hmm. and starts singing for because at the same time it's very exploitive but yeah. on the other hand it's also like pretty endearing just to do that so yeah, and yeah. It, it's it it writes that line like of it does feel sort of like exploited like he's meant to be the butt of the joke in that mm-hmm. sort of situation obviously but it's like I, know, I i will say the staging of it though doesn't cut two close-ups of people laughing yeah it like i'm not it saying it's not amused but not like laughing and i'm not even saying that there wasn't some of that but it was probably happening on the fringes so the movie itself wasn't spotlighting or giving credence to that reaction right. so i agree with you alex and that it, it does straddle that line right, but right. i definitely think that's kind of what makes the scene work is that the focus is on him and his performance <laughs> yeah and i yeah i thought it was great i thought it was one of the better parts of the film actually yeah. Uh, just finishing my, my thought and overall thoughts on, on the, the homeless aspect of it. Um, you know, there's this, and it's, it's really simple and it's actually probably, um, and I I know it's not the big part of the story, but it probably could have been a little bit better of the, um, people attacking the homeless people, almost like they're street thugs or whatever. Mm. Um, but I think that there is really something here talking about people who are homeless, um, all of them being put into one bucket amongst regular people saying that, oh, these people are just shit, scum of the earth. They don't yeah. deserve to live. Uh, we should get rid of these people because they're stealing all our needs. Um, and the reality is, is A, every single one of those people is different and has a different reason why they're there. Mm. And they are all human beings who have feelings yeah. and has some of them have lost their way and some of them have had a lot of troubles and maybe some of them are bad people just like every other group of people. Yeah. Um, so it, it's just, um, it was, it was nice to see, take a humanistic look at it. And really, you know, as I thought about it, there are not a lot of films that really spend time focusing on the human aspect mm-hmm. of, of homeless people and the, you know, people who are just, having a hard time in their lives, whether it be financially or mentally or spiritually or yeah. whatever. I mean, it, it focusing on people that are in a, a really bad spot and maybe some of them just need help, whatever help means. Yeah. Also, this movie does not give you a scene in which Perry becomes non-homeless, yeah. which is not to say that it doesn't happen, mm-hmm. but oftentimes I feel like in this kind of a narrative, that would be the crutch. The is, solution. Is to at least present that to make sure that the audience is safe knowing that they quote-unquote got out of that situation, mm-hmm. which whether it's a good thing or a bad thing or a quality of life improvement or not, um, does not validate a person uh in the end, so to speak. Right. So, well, the only thing I think that the audience can not definitively, but for the most part, take away is that I feel like uh, whether whatever is going to become of his life, Perry's, I think relationship. Oh, I was going to say I feel like he's at least somewhat starting to decide that it's okay to start to grasp reality mm-hmm. and start to live with his wounds that he has. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the moment uh, after he wakes up from his, um, by all accounts, self-inflicted state. catatonic state, yeah. um, are, you know, the only actual moment where he is the person who is not Perry, but the actual um, man who is part of the the shooting that, that transpired after the... Uh, the nice little radio advice that Jeff Bridges gave that gentleman. So I mean, he's been, uh, he's acquired his hyperfixation and, uh, he's finally able to begin the, the road to reconcile like his past and 
was present and yeah. trying to move towards and and seeing that there Which is, is really that there, the same that there, thing that, that Jeff Bridges is doing the in the entire film too. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's, well, it's it's nice. Yeah. Yeah. And it's good too because it's really a MacGuffin. It's yeah, it is. It doesn't matter. Yeah. But a thematic one. Yeah. Which is kind of great because it's kind of rare for that to actually be the case. <laughs> I keep on thinking back to the, the retelling of the Fisher King story, how uh, the king was like, how did you know that this was what I was looking for? I was like, I don't I, – I only knew that you were thirsty. And that's sort of like the fact that the – the actual grail yeah. itself is beside the point. It's it's really just about aiding another person and helping another other person. I think that's uh that's the virtue in this in the story, not necessarily what was attained. Well, because Jeff Bridges finally did something that he sees no value in, because mm-hmm. before he was throwing money or trying to get him laid or whatever. Right, right, right. So that should mean though, something in his world. It doesn't right. mean anything in Perry's world. And so, even though it it might not work for some people, but that's kind of what I loved about that bedside chat before he goes and does it, which is like him finally breaking down and saying, "I'm only doing this because I want to do it for you." Mm-hmm. And well, it's, it's also actually true. It is, and it's a really, really good you know curve from what got him in this place in the first place, which is just um, kind of crassly giving advice to people when they call, which is really just saying these terrible things that to him mean nothing, but could mean a whole hell of a lot of things to other people. Before I pass it off to you, I will say... Who's you? Me? Yeah, Tucson. The other person who hasn't gone yet. Uh, But yes, sorry about that, Tucson. That's okay. Uh... I will say, uh, in a film that does not have a enormous amount of gore and violence, um, Robin Williams' wife getting shot and her brains flying into his mouth was really disturbing. Him having his uh, abdomen uh, slashed by the the two sort of crazy teenagers who are just going around setting homeless people on fire. I want to believe that that is not a real thing, but I'm pretty, Ooh. I'm pretty damn sure that was a thing back in the eighties or I don't know if it's still a thing. not a thing anymore. Yeah. Yeah. That's very disturbing. Yeah. But anyways, that, that <laughs> shot of, uh, yeah, no, I just, forgot about that. Oh that, man. That's a, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Also too, uh, I got a nice chuckle about, Something about Robin Williams and uh, his penis the size of Florida or something. I got oh, an erection the size. On. I got a heart on the size of Florida. <laughs> like, yeah, you, yeah, you cracked was, about that. Because that, well, it was very good. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I it's quite enjoyed this romantic film. romantic things anyone's ever said in a movie. Yeah. There's... He's saying that because he's saying he's not going to go up there. Mm-hmm. He wants to. That's how badly he wants to. Yeah. There's a, There's another joke that he sort of has like earlier on with uh with Jack when they're in the middle of the the park where Jack is trying to convince Perry to go after Lydia and it's like man like what is what is what is King Arthur without uh Guinevere and it's like well happily married I was just like oh my god that's such a good ah that's such a good in joke I was a I was a King Arthur nerd when I was a kid so like I got that there was another really good remark uh it was in that same scene in the park talking about somebody coming by jogging killing them and i don't remember exactly what it was yeah it was yeah great. he goes because they're because he's naked and i hope there's no homophobic like asshole who's gonna come here and try to kill us and as revenge against his father i was yeah. like what the fuck yeah, yeah. once so a shock jack always a shock jack yep yeah well i, I i'm sorry I, this is the third time i've done this no. but i'm <laughs> gonna say one more thing so i like this movie yeah, yeah i'm a fan yeah it's a good anyways movie. Yeah. um i loved that uh my reading, at least, of um, Jack's first call to Lydia when he's trying to tell her that she's won this thing, that he's literally unable to make a phone call and try to make a sales pitch without playing his little sound effects. Mm-hmm. And I just found that to be fantastic yeah. Yeah. and also pathetic. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Tucson. Yeah. I, uh, if it hasn't, if I haven't been clear already, I like this movie a lot. Um, I want to talk a little bit about what actually motivated us to watch and talk about this movie. I think it was... Uh, we were, oh, no! 
about, I, was, I was talking about I was watching Mrs. Doubtfire is where it started. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I think it was like our the last episode that we recorded, and for some reason, like after we stopped recording, we're talking about Terry Gilliam and some new uh, bullshit that he had just gotten into. It was like I think he had like a, a very sour interview promoting that was ostensibly supposed to be promoting um, the death, white supremacy, the death of Don Quixote. <laughs> Um, and eventually he just sort of like decided he was bored of talking about his own film that he had basically been trying to make for over a decade and instead decided to talk about, of uh, uh, toxic masculinity and how it doesn't exist and how women know what they're doing and yeah, just a whole bunch of bullshit. And basically like that sort of like launched into the conversation of like, why is he even trying to make a Don Quixote film when he's arguably made that film already with this and it was already so damn good? And that's sort of why we like decided to watch it and talk about it because yeah. Alex hadn't seen it and Nick and I had seen it and we really like it. Um, this has been my first time watching it um, in a couple of years. I can't remember how many. Uh, but I really, really enjoyed this, this rewatch. Uh, a lot of the things that sort of... Uh, popped out to me were the really sharp writing like i can't recall all of the jokes that i laughed at but there were just too many um i really enjoyed uh the lighting and the cinematography Mm. especially in this Mm. film i think that around this era like uh i haven't seen all of like terry gilliam's films i haven't even seen like what is arguably his most (laughs) well-known film um brazil i've seen brazil um what film are you speaking I'm of? I'm talking then? about Monty Python and the Holy Grail. That's not his film. That's not his film? No, he's just in it. Oh. Yeah, I mean, that's just a Monty Python film. Oh, I thought he directed it. I mean, maybe. I think, yeah, I think he was the one who, like, directed it or co-directed it. Oh. Um, well, I, as much as if that's true. It's either a toss-up between that or um, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas being, like, his most, like... Yeah, he did co-direct it. Yeah, hmm. that's what I mean. But once again, that was an extension of a troupe. Right. Not so much a directorial. I just meant when people that's say Terry, yeah, I, uh, Terry I, I, Gilliam I picture, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like he had some help there. So okay. Yeah. Anyway. See, it's funny because even but though... But I, I agree. I know yeah. what you mean. I've never been a, a huge fan, huge interest in his film. I mean, the only film I'd seen of his prior to this was Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. I would say that I would have thought that his most well-known film was 12 monkeys. So, mm, well, I mean, that's what, it, what we were sort of like talking on it before, like sort of that 10, 11 year stretch of films, uh, between, I think it was just after time bandits. We actually looked this up and then it was like Brazil and then it was another film. And then it was, uh, this film and like, yeah, uh, basically going back to what I was talking about, the cinematography in this, like, it reminded me a lot of what he was doing in Brazil where he had like this really artful use of Dutch angles and uh fish-eyed lens in order to actually distort the physical like vantage points but of it, a place to but make it. But it wasn't overbearing. No, it, no, it, it wasn't. started early in the film. Yeah. And I thought it was going to be, yeah. and it really was not that. No, it, yeah. it, it, uh, it, it was actually really, uh, well done. And I think that it just, it reminds me a lot of like German expressionism where like you see how he uses like different sort of light sources in order to like create these, like these sort of allusions to, to other ideas. Like you were talking about before in the first scene where you have like the shafts of light that look like bars. Like Mm -hmm. he's actually incarcerated by his own shittiness. Like Jack played by uh, Jeff Bridges is just a total fucking retrobate. He's like, he's, he's just, I made a joke about him being like sort of like a pseudo Alex Jones type. And I'm just like, he's just a fucking slimy sleazeball of a man. And it's just like, and his eventual arc of, of transformation is it's not clean and it's not easy because he does have a stopover into just like going back to his old shitty ways and, and really just abusing the, the support and love of a woman who we were, but when we were watching early on with Anne, and just like I, trying to to discern what it is that this woman sees in this man to constantly take this this verbal and emotional abuse from him. Well, that's love, actually. Man, oh fuck, love, actually. Um, 
Anyway, uh, yeah, I just I, I I really love this film on a on a on a formalistic level. Is like it's just really well done. Um, Robin Williams's performance was incredible, and I and you know Nick made a note of this uh, while we were watching it, where this is probably one of his more more subdued roles, where he's not just like cracking off at every minute. Like he still has this sort of this powerful like improvisational wit and intelligence about him and a levity yeah. but at the same time like it doesn't come across as uh, a cartoonish like he's, he's he's he really comes across as a guy who's really going through it and really sort of um uh repressing some things that he otherwise should have to like sort of like wrestle with um the fantastical elements in this such as with the the costume design and uh, the the scenes involving the Red Knight, like that's one of those scenes that really reminded me a lot of Brazil, like with the dream sequences. It just felt totally otherworldly and just you, you were fucking uh, metal as shit. I loved it. You were loving the scene where they uh, are having a ball in the middle of uh, Grand Central oh Station. Oh my god! I just oh. remember oh that fucking scene. I was like. Yeah. That's literally a scene where I, I I just said out loud, "Why did Terry Gilliam throw it all away?" Like he was just such a good filmmaker, and it seems like that it was just so magical, and and the way that 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 the ball scene eventually just subsumes into just like a regular like like subway where everybody is just like walking around, and then like the diegetic sound just like pops back in, and it's just so. It's so well done. It's so beautiful. And it is. And also, too, uh, this is a somewhat small, but I saw it as soon as it started. Like, the, the ball that's supposed to be spinning in yeah. the middle really resembled a lot like the um, the chalice cup that, that mm-hmm. he's looking for. Is that just a lot of little things? That scene is very good. Yeah. And even it goes through different angles, too, like wide angle and, and close angle. And mm-hmm. you know what? That's another thing, though. Um, CGI sucks because they actually had to, like, do that in some way. Yeah. Rig up a... Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and actually... And it, it looks like it. And actually and have extras. Good. And actually have them choreographed and doing that. And that's... And having that presence, like, it makes that scene all the more just impactful mm-hmm. and more memorable. Um, I'm still sort of, like, stuck on the... How, how dated this film is and how mm-hmm. it could only work in the time that it really came out in. Because, like, you see, like, a fucking video store and it's just like... Like not not even like a blockbuster or anything like that or home video. It's just like a video ball or some shit like that. It was uh, it was very quaint. It was very it was it was nice to to see that setting. I enjoyed that. Yeah, there's a lot more that I I, I I'm probably okay. Let's do it. Here's something else I want want to like circling back to the whole like depiction of like homelessness and um people with mental illness. Like, I think that it was only towards the end that I sort of like clued into the fact is like, he does have sort of like a, like a, an affinity or a fetish for the depiction of mental illness when it comes to like films like 12 monkeys. And even with maybe a little bit of like Brazil in there as well too. Um, I don't know how to, I don't, I don't know. Is, is that just like, it, it it feels grotesque, but at the same time, it's sympathetic, and I don't know how to fucking. It it feels like it's playing into the very worst sort of well, the the, the most like how he can make a good movie, and right. One that's earnest, and still apparently think that women are liars, and yeah, it's uh, it's it's it, it plays into the most san- like the most sensational sort of uh, understanding of like sanitariums, and it's, it it feels. No, it's definitely, uh, I would say, co-opting the uh, stereotypical visual mm-hmm. signifiers of what you know the public thinks of mental illness, so that way you can have some macabre images. Yeah. Um, but which is exploitive, and, and yeah, I don't like that at all. Well, but because the Fisher King is explicitly a movie about a um, person with mental illness, mm-hmm. um, it's I would say at least complimentary to them and to everybody uh that he meets um of that subsection of people and whatnot so yeah yeah Yeah, it can be both yeah i thought that the uh the climactic 
like it's it's pretty much like a climax, like the climactic scene of Jack like taking on the raiments of uh of Perry the knight and just like st- like staging a coup of the castle and just like stealing back the uh the the Holy Grail. I and really like that. Inadvertently saving the man from suicide. Saving the man from suicide who may or may not be Terry Gilliam himself. I thought it looked like him, and I couldn't find any credited actor who played that person. So yeah, I'm pretty sure it might yeah. be him. Yeah, uh, the lighting but and, and did he save that man that or really did he cool. save himself? Um, why not both? He did it. I yeah. mean, yeah. Okay, yeah. Nick. Yeah. Did the man save himself, or did or did Jack save himself? Is that what you're asking? Did he save the man, or did he save himself? Yeah, he just was, was trying to get a rise was, out of you. Okay, whatever. <laughs> that was a joke on the metaphorical subtext of that scene. Well, that wasn't a very good joke, but you know what? You know, one out of a hundred. Wow. One out of a hundred, it's a bad joke. But you know what? Your other 99, the killer, you, you buddy. You had to ask for clarification, so I don't know if you're necessarily... Well, I couldn't. I couldn't know if it was a joke or if it was just like an attempt at one. That's on you, buddy. That's yeah, okay. Anyway, I love this film. I thought it was really fun. Yeah, that's it. You know what that is? Yeah. Fun. <laughs> Never had it. <laughs> yeah, I've had fun. Good. I have, I have fun watching this film. Well, good. Yeah, I'm. I'm glad to hear and that. I had fun watching it with you too. I had fun watching it with Alex. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Yeah. Two's on two. Yeah. He was good. Yeah. Uh, so. I had fun watching it with Alex. <laughs> uh, one of the scenes that I uh, thought was most interesting uh, was the scene when Robin Williams pretty much professes his love to Lydia and tells her of all the stalking he's been doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's not weirded out by it. She's just sort of so, taken aback. Yeah. So. I'm I'm a little conflicted on that scene because uh that is definitely even though it's not <laughs> even though it's not like sexualizing looking at a female way that feels like a male gaze version of how that scene would go. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> because it's a proclamation of love, a declaration scene and, that we see and all the time. She falls into your arms because of what you just said because oh, I love that you wandered around and saw that I love eating jawbreakers and that I like buying books on the side of the road and, and you I know I hate my job. Yeah, why do you know that? You've never been inside. Like I don't I don't know. So there there's something about that that has felt very uncomfortable to me. Uh, and oh, yeah. yeah. Kind of reminds me of that show, You. I watched an episode of it, and I thought it was very fucking creepy. Okay. Well, that's the point of the show. I know. That's the whole point. Yeah. So but the, the other part about that is why I'm conflicted about that particular scene, is that I do feel like that was actually a nice moment for him. And uh, obviously, she was wanting some person to just acknowledge that she's not just an outcast that she does have qualities and whatever but still i know what they were going for but at the same time i don't really no, it's, like it it's weird how it even works somewhat yeah, yeah i mean like i i'd agree with you alex which is to say that it's kind of a his earnestness sort of overcomes his creepiness which it it doesn't really it, it, that's what i'm saying that's what i'm saying like it, it it's played that way in the actual scene but like for the viewer it's like uh, like is she gonna ask like at any point how do you know that how long have you been doing this how long have you been doing who who are you are you that guy i've been following you since birth maybe she's not real don't I, do that don't I really, that. I really just... Uh, that doesn't make any sense. Maybe she's the Red Knight. There is another scene that I thought was really good. Thanks for taking this control. Take back control. There's there another scene that I really enjoyed. Um, and that was in the the Chinese food restaurant like with the wipes. Like I, I was sort of making a note of that. I was just like, how would that play like nowadays if somebody actually like used wipes to that effect? Like it, I think it, was, uh, it worked in this film... It was like, but it probably wouldn't have worked in a in a more serious sort of sort of romantic comedy or something like that of its of its ilk. I really enjoyed like when it zooms out of him, like he's like singing the Lydia old Lydia, which made me cringe because I immediately started thinking of like Breaking Bad and getting like flash black flashbacks to that. Ooh, she sounds getting a flash black. Uh, shut up. 
uh, <laughs> and it's it's zooming out on uh, their table, and it's basically like it's this very beautifully lit, like beautifully like like framed scene, and showing like all these <laughs> these people who work in the <laughs> restaurant who are just like they're waiting for these people to leave, but also they're sort of like enraptured by like Robin Williams performance. And I thought that was really, you well, know, I, I, yeah, I thought it was really good. I'd agree with you. I liked how the more we <clears throat> zoomed out of that table, um, the, that, that window pane mm-hmm. is, uh, reflected on all the table surfaces yeah. as it moves out. So it's like they're literally what is happening over there is kind of spreading throughout the whole restaurant, which is a pretty beautiful image. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Also, they're really good at playing hockey with chopsticks. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I mentioned before uh, my feelings mostly on the scene to scene dynamic with the relationship between uh, the earlier dude and Anne. Um, so what did you guys think about that? Because, again, uh, at least at the time, somebody saw something really in uh, the portrayal of the character Anne uh, as she did win an Academy Award for this film. Which, really? Yeah. Wow. Which this film doesn't seem like it would be something that would be nominated for an Oscar, but mm-hmm. I, I know that Robin Williams was also nominated for this film, so mm. that's good. That's all. And, anyways, um, but... It's a Robin effect. Okay. Uh, even though I didn't love certain parts of it, I still do think that, you know, it is interesting to see someone almost fairy, but is that, is that the whole purpose of, of her character though? And I, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm I starting to really jump on this idea. Yeah. Here's, here's what I would say. Yeah. Um, I very much like her character. Okay. Mostly because of the performance mm-hmm. from the moment we're introduced to, uh, Jack three years later after the incident we're introduced to him with her mm-hmm. you know what I mean like we don't get a scene in which he's by himself uh, without her you know whatever and I feel like that speaks volumes to what we then can confirm as we keep watching which is that he wouldn't even probably exist without her and I uh, you know past that point mm-hmm. and that she's been an actual foundation and a support system for him without being a doormat which because I believe I don't think she has at least like yeah he like she called him out on being verbally abusive or whatever but I don't <clears throat> think that he was ever as cruel to her as he was to people prior to his outburst mm-hmm. uh, and that fateful night. Well, I do think that... His cruelty to her is more just a reflection of just like I, I do his own there self-hatred. Are, there are multiple moments when <laughs> her character is not picking up on it, but he's just saying all of these things that are like, he doesn't really care about you, which plays through into the breakup scene because he says a lot of things where he talks about how terrible his life is and how miserable he is. And I feel like if I was a person in a relationship with somebody who was telling me how miserable they were in my current life state, I'd be like, oh, well, I'm a big part of that, obviously. So, oh, yeah. I mean, it's hard not yeah. to obviously take something like that personal if you are in a relationship unit with the other person. But there is truth to the fact that sometimes that's technically an internal process that, yeah. you know, if you're going to be the other person and project yourself into that, then, you know, that's also your doing as well. And to say now, what I would say about her, though, is that um, I actually really did appreciate her performance. And I thought that it was uh, for a movie in which I don't think the Lydia and Perry romance really holds up. I actually think their relationship uh, does Jack and and sure. because I thought that it was pretty uh good in the way that she had pretty much all the agency in that relationship and so the moment you know he has the salvation which i think is something that she's been wanting for him and not because it would bring her happiness like she has her own life and she uh, obviously owns the video store and whatnot like but for because she loves him i uh, was happy to see this finally happen for him so the idea that he wouldn't want to share that with her because now he's quote unquote back to normal mm-hmm. is I think one of the bigger gut punches in the entire movie. Yeah. That scene when he's, when she's like telling him about all the things that she'd like to do now that they're going to have a little more money and right. whenever he's like, 
as soon as he's like, well, I'm like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. here we go. And I don't think that scene would be emotionally resonant if, A, her performance wasn't that good up until that point. I agree with that. And, yep. B, if it wasn't written well enough that it would sustain uh, that kind of heavy breakup. But it totally does for me. And um, But even in the breakup process, she retains her dignity because – she sees exactly what's happening and calls him out on it. And while she can't stop it because you can't stop another person's, you know, action, she does not leave without essentially pointing it out and basically saying if uh, not like come back, but like, all right, fine. Like, you know, break up with me now because I'm not putting up with like your withdrawal, you know, me, whatever. So, um, I I don't know. I I thought that character was pretty good. And, Mm -hmm. I do think the final scene is probably a little whatever because it's kind of like how do you end that because it's pretty much the only way it can end is for that to happen. So I agree that maybe the final scene is a little bit underwritten, but um, I like that she, A, hits him. (laughs) Like, you know, it's not like the movie's, like, unaware of, you know, what's gone down and whatnot. Um, But B, too, um, she makes him go through with everything and she literally yells at him i'm not going to fill in your blanks like you have to start from this moment on start saying what you mean and start talking about your feelings and start being that person and i will happily be with that person and so yeah no i i very much appreciate the relationship i definitely think it's a somewhat it's one you do have to kind of scrutinize because it got off the ground in that three-year period we don't you know see so it's mm-hmm. kind of hard to read into it as far as we don't know the origins and or how it was going or whatever and we only really know them through this extraordinary time in jack's life but uh yeah it works for me and i have no idea what she was up against so i'm not saying she necessarily deserved the award or whatever but i definitely think it's a good idea of what a supporting performance is which is that mm-hmm. you're not stealing the movie but you are carving out your own path in a Movie in which, you know, you had two powerhouse uh, actors uh, doing some good work. So. Mm-hmm. I would concur with that. Yeah. So who's ready to go to final ratings? Uh, I am. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I would give this film a three and a half out of five. I really enjoyed it. Um, haven't seen it in a while. But, yeah, I would totally recommend this. Um, it's probably a much better introduction to Terry Gilliam than maybe just don't tell people it's a Terry Gilliam film. Just say like, Oh, this film's really good. It's like, yeah, yeah, there's some other films that are made by the same director. And at some point he just stopped making films. You can cut it off at fear and loathing. and Nothing will be lost. Yes. Uh, so um, yes. I will say, uh, so the year that she won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress, mm-hmm. um, Diane Ladd was uh, nominated. Um, for what? For Rambling Rose. Okay. Yep. Kate Nelligan was uh, nominated for The Prince of Tides. Okay. Uh, Jessica Tandy was voted for Fried Green Tomatoes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Juliette Lewis was nominated for Cape Fear. <laughs> yeah. I'm starting to see why she won. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, and uh, interestingly enough, uh, on the other side, um, the Best Supporting Actor that year was won by Jack Palance for City Slickers. So... That's where that was. Look at that. I like City Slickers, actually. Oh, I mean, I watch that all the time when I was growing up. But I just, Jack Palance, not really a model. Yeah, I don't know that, like, I would give that to him for that. (laughs) Uh, Uh, So I uh, quite enjoyed this. I actually am also going to give this three and a half out of five. I was a big fan of The Fisher King. I I liked what this film was going for. I do think, even though it had some really awkward moments, um, as I mentioned on some earlier episodes, uh, it's 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 good to look back on films that are from a different era, and I don't know about respect is the right word, but really acknowledge the time that they came from, and not necessarily hold everything about that against them. 
so that being said, I thought there were some some negatives here, but I thought overall this was a good, mostly original story that you know doesn't really feel like anything I've ne- necessarily seen before, um, and also at the same time does feel quite earnest as uh, Nick and Toussaint were both mentioning as well. So uh, three and a half out of five for me for the Fisher King. I think it's a very good movie. Hi. I give this movie a three and a half out of five. Oh, look at us. It's like we're in a gang. Three best, three and a half best friends. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's uh, it holds up pretty well considering uh, the type rope it is on from the era in which it came out mm-hmm. and the subject matter it's depicting with the uh, tone that the piece is in, it, in and of itself. So, just, just sort of as a little aside, like what sort of era of films do you think is more precarious to like look back on? Do you think it's like the early to mid nineties or the early to mid aughts? Uh, I think, Oh, out of those two, out of like out of those two is like, For a moment or, I thought it was like just picking a era. Uh, um, you can pick an era. Yeah. No, that's I, fine. Was, yeah. I was going to say for me, it's weirdest to watch movies from the seventies. Okay. Because, at the time, things were becoming more liberal and mm-hmm. hippy-dippy. Yeah. That meant that more and more people were willing to put things into their movie mm-hmm. and then not think it through whatsoever. Just have it there? Well, just have it there, but then also have it there for a laugh or have it... Like, the, it was just this boom of, like, not necessarily crazy good representation, but like, oh, you know, now we can have gay black characters yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but they still need to have affectations right. and whatnot. So um, that's the one that I always go back to, especially after watching a lot of exploitation filmmaking and mm. whatnot. But anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, if I was choosing between what you just did, though, wait, what were your choices? It was the early to mid-90s to the early to mid-aughts. Because I was just thinking about when we did our Love Actually episode, and you were talking about, like, when was the last time I watched a film from that I era? Think, I think, actually, late 90s, early 2000s is where yeah. the most awkward films you will see are, live at. I would agree with mm-hmm. that. Okay. We were yeah. kind of pushing on the edge of the bubble before, before we entered this era that we're in now, mm-hmm. which is also hell, but, you yeah. know. right. But but also too that era was very very brash and very upfront with exactly what it was trying to say. I feel like Mm -hmm. so if you look back, like there are multiple PG thirteen movies where people are just saying all kinds of the worst things you could possibly imagine. Yeah, we talked about one earlier this evening when we brought up the majestic movie. Rat Race. Oh, yeah. Which is a prime example of what PG-13 comedies were doing in the early 2000s, which is thinking that they were pushing the envelope when in reality was just pushing daisies because they were dead on arrival. Am I right? <laughs> but um, no, that I, that's yeah, no, the one you approve of. It, it feels like um, I, I feel like that era and huh, this is actually funny because I'm actually bringing up another reference from the Joker movie. Um, but I do feel like that era is a little bit like Robert De Niro's character where it's just like, you know, this is a family show, so don't say anything too bad. Where, like, those films weren't swearing, so they thought that that meant that their content was family-friendly. But really, like Rat Race and such? Rat Race was pretty bad. No, that's what I'm saying. Oh, okay. A lot of those films of that era, I mean, there were swears in them, but it was cleaner. But at the same time, they were still having all of these really crippling themes that anyone who was watching that and giving it ratings were just like, that's fine. We don't give a shit about those people. And it's just like, oh, man, looking back on it, I that would is... Oof. say I agree with what you're saying, except I would actually take Rat Race out of that example. Yeah. Rat Race was a weird movie, okay, man? And I watched it a lot. Uh, like, the first scene is when Brecken Meyer goes to check out of the hotel, and the joke is that he's watched a lot of porn, and it's not really his charges, but then she has to read off. So in a PG-13 movie, when I was, like, 10 or 11, I'm listening to the concierge going, backdoor celestes, anal, backdoor wives. Like, 
like just all this whatever. So anyway, that movie had a predilection for, uh, well, I guess anal, but also uh, for vulgarity. Mm. Anyway, mm-hmm. literally they they have prostitutes come in to do some of their weird bets in between the the races, like when they bet on which. Uh, oh wait, were those maids? No, they were maids. <laughs> There was prostitutes for something else because he said something oh, about a, a hot tub full of Pepto Bismol with a prostitute, and they were that doesn't that's, sound appetizing at all. Well, that that it, it's not actually the the joke there. I'm, I retain a lot from the movie. Rat I Ray, guess so. Is when uh, they keep betting on things, right? And mm. so the latest thing they were betting on when they cut to is uh, Dave Thomas, a uh, Canadian comedian for an actor. For anyone who doesn't know or remember, but not the Wendy's guy. Uh, is uh, talking to a prostitute, and he keeps saying, like, okay, what if I want to do this? And the, and so the idea was, and he keeps saying all these weird things, and then finally it ends with, in a hot tub filled with Pepto-Bismol. And then she was like, well, I guess that would be $10,000. And then everybody, sh- like, was in the room at the same time, but hiding, and then John Cleese was like, who had $10,000? So that's what they were betting on, was how much uh, that would cost. Well, at least that's dedicated. Oh, it was. Hmm. Anyway, that was a fun little detour. Yes, it was. Yes, just like that Rat Race movie. Great stuff. I I watched that quite a bit when I was younger as well, so I am not saying anything necessarily bad about it, other than it definitely does have some cringeworthy moments. In fact, probably lots of them. Yeah. Seth Green is in it. Come on. Seth Green is in it, and his brother is played by a guy who's doing a weird voice because he got his tongue pierced and it went bad. But his voice is... He has the black spot on his tongue. Yeah. It cannot be healthy. But the voice is too close to what I would think most people would be doing an impression of if they were doing an impression of someone with Down syndrome. And yeah. I think that's the joke of the movie. It's not Ooh. that he has a funny voice. I've got to say, it's, it's... that's exactly what I was getting at earlier. Yeah, no. And you were saying that Rat Race was exempt, so. No, okay. I meant, because you kept oh. saying, like, it doesn't have swears and it doesn't have, like. Oh, no, it does. Crudity or something. It, I'm like. Oh, it's very crude. That's what I meant. Like, that was an extreme PG-13 yeah. movie. But, yeah, that's but, yeah, it's fine. We're we're all on the same page here. I quit. Even if we're not. Oh. Can't deal with this? I quit. Until next week. Oh. So you have nothing left to say on the Then Fisher I quit Green? again. Okay. That's all I got. So nothing else on the fish screen. Okay. So all of us, three and a half out of five. So high praise from this group. So, uh, if you out there have any thoughts on The Fisher King, feel free to send them on to us at filmtankshow at gmail.com, or also find us on Twitter or Facebook at Film Tank Show, uh, and share your thoughts about this film with us there. Coming up on our next episode, our friend Anna will be back to join us to talk about the Reese Witherspoon film Legally Blonde. Uh... She has said multiple times in the past that she's wanted to do an episode on this, and now we are just going to go ahead and do it. Uh, So I know she's very excited, and I'm excited to talk about it as well, because it is, I would say, somewhat different from the usual fare that we do here. I would Um, say. It's a cult classic. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. So uh, that is something to look forward to coming up on episode 117. Two hundred and seventeen. Two hundred and seventeen. That's okay. It's been a long day. Uh, Anywho, um, you can find all of our episodes on FilmTankShow.com, also on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, most places where you can find podcasts, not all of them, but a lot of them, you can find our little podcast, again, at FilmTankShow. From Toussaint Egan, Nick Cheney, and myself, Alex Diekman, thank you very much for listening to us. We'll catch up with you next time here at Fault.